Scripture today is from Genesis 25, verses 1 through 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Leamites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham expired in an old age and satisfied, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. Well, good morning. It's good to have you guys here this morning. If you're visiting with us, I want to welcome you to Cole Community Church. It's great to have you here. I'd like to start with an illustration given by a gentleman by the name of N.T. Wright uh, a couple months ago. He says, uh, said, Ten months ago, on January 15, 2009, a miracle took place, uh, or so some say. You might remember what happened. Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia bound for Charlotte, North Carolina. Two minutes after taking off, the aircraft ran into a flock of geese, badly damaging both of the engines, causing them to lose power, and instantly Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions. They could see one or two nearby airports, but there was no guarantee they would make it that far. They could land on the New Jersey Turnpike, but that would not be easy nor safe. Finally, they decided to crash land on the Hudson River. In the two or three minutes they had before they hit the water, the pilot and the co-pilot had to do a whole host of vital things. One, they had to shut down the engines. Two, they had to set the right speed so the plane would glide, yes, I said glide, as long as possible without power. They had to get the, the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to override the flight management system, activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves to make the plane watertight, disconnect the autopilot, most of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast right-hand turn so that they could come down going south or facing south, going with the flow of the Hudson. Then they had to straighten the plane up from this turn uh, so that on landing they would be level. Then they had to get the nose back up and uh, land flat, flat and straight on the water. This is, a least, this is at least a list a small list of key things they needed to do in a couple of minutes. There are probably several others which we amateurs wouldn't even understand. As you may know, everyone got off safely. So many describe the incident as a miracle, and at one level I wouldn't want to question that. But to me, the really fascinating thing about the whole business is the way it spectacularly illustrates a vital truth. A truth which many today have either forgotten or never known in the first place. 
You could call it the power of acquired habits. You might say it was the result of many years of training and experience, but the ancients would have called it virtue. Virtue in this sense isn't simply another word for goodness. Virtue in this sense, strict sense, is what happens when someone has made a thousand small decisions requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. Then on the thousandth and first time, when it is really needed and when it really matters, they find that they do do it when it's needed, and it seems to come automatically. On the thousandth and first occasion, it does indeed look as if it just happens, but reflection tells us that it doesn't just happen as easily as that. If you or I had been flying that plane that afternoon and had done what comes naturally, or if we allowed things just to happen, we would have crashed in the Bronx. Can you imagine me flying that plane? Whew. The key phrase is, which again we often use in a rather loose way, but which has, been, which has a technical sense that goes back at least as far as Cicero in the first century B.C., The key phrase is that virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature, not first nature as if they just happen naturally, rather a kind of second order level of naturalness. Such choices and actions will start off being practiced with great difficulty, but ending up being second nature. Of course, Captain Sullenberger hadn't been born with the ability to fly a plane let alone with the specific skills he exhibited in those vital few minutes. None of the skills, certainly none of the courage and restraint and cool judgment and concern to do the right thing for others, which he displayed, are part of the kit we humans possess at birth. We have to work on it. We have to want to work on it. We have to want to do it all. We have to choose to learn it all. We have to practice it again and again and again. And then sometimes when the moment comes, it happens automatically. What is the other option? Doing what comes natural? What comes natural? Well, to me, what I find natural is being selfish and sinful. What if they had to turn to a manual or a book? Hey, co-pilot, grab the book off the shelf and see where it says what to do when you can't land at the nearest airports and your both engines are out. They get out the book, open the index, say, okay, here's where you go, turn to page 87, they look through everything. Okay, we've got to turn now page 145. Can you imagine if they had to get out a book to land the plane? What was needed in that moment was virtue, the specific virtue of how to fly a plane, but also the general virtues of courage, restraint, cool judgment, and the concern to do the right thing for others. You see, Aristotle said that these were the keys to genuine human existence. Aristotle said the goal to human life is happiness. Not the kind of happiness you and I think about, but a rich sense of deep well-being. Not necessarily physical well-being, but a sense of completeness. Being true to yourself. Being at ease. Being comfortable in your own skin. Being fulfilled. Those who are happy in this sense know how to enjoy richly that which should be enjoyed. They know how to reflect on complex and confusing situations like family, work, one's country, and the wider world. Such people know how to grieve appropriately over deep sorrow, how to remain dignified but not pompous, cheerful but not flippant in any and all circumstances. 
There are, of course, plenty of people who have some of those abilities, but not all. Sadly, there are some who seem to have few, if any. What Aristotle wanted to tell us, then, is this stage of happiness doesn't happen by accident. This state comes about by choosing and resolutely pursuing the four characteristics we noted when commenting on the pilot. Courage, restraint, cool judgment, and a concern to do the right thing for others. Or another way to say the same thing is courage, temperance, prudence, and justice. Aristotle said, you become courageous, temperate, prudent, and just, not automatically, not accidentally, but by choice and by practice. We have to choose again and again to behave in ways which begin to exhibit these features. And as we learn to make these choices, hard as they will be for some time, we may find bit by bit they become second nature. We do them automatically. Where before there was no apparent moral muscle, now there will be one, and it will be strong and fit for the task. Virtues of the, the virtues of the moral muscle, once you develop them, will make you fit for the journey on the road to happiness. I suspect calling events like the safe landing of Flight 1549 a miracle may actually be a way in which our culture chooses to ignore the real challenge, the real moral message of that remarkable event. You see, our culture prefers effortless spontaneity with occasional divine intervention in emergencies rather than working with God on developing the muscles which will meet those emergencies with a God-given second nature which appears spontaneous but is in fact the result of thinking and choosing and practicing. And I believe I'm a result of that culture. I believe that we are a result of this idea that sometimes we would just rather have effortless spontaneity with occasional divine intervention. I'd rather my life be spontaneous and good. And I'd rather God just intervene rather than asking me to do the hard work of knowing him, following him, seeking his face. And as we've been looking at the life of Abraham, we see, like Pilate Sullenberger, that Abraham, over his lifetime, made decisions time and time again to move towards or move away from God. Those decisions, day by day, that we make in faith will either make us more like his disciple or take us away from him. So as we've been looking at his life, I'd like to kind of look back over his life. As the passage says that Isaac and Ishmael uh, buried their father. And I'd like to maybe do a little imaginative thinking, if you will. What might they have been saying as they buried their father? What might they have been talking about as they reflected back over his life? One of them might have said, you know, Dad, was a, he was an amazing guy, but... What, you know, he was 75 years old when, when he packed things up and decided to leave his country and leave his home. Yeah, wasn't it amazing that, that Dad actually heard from a God who said, leave your country, your people, and your father's household? Isn't it amazing that Dad actually heard from a God? Because the gods that he grew up with didn't speak. The gods that he grew up with didn't hear. They didn't see. They didn't act. Man, what, what would it have been like to see Dad listening to God? God told him that he would make him a great nation. God told him that he would bless him and na- make his name great. But Dad didn't have any kids. 
But it says that dad, you know, dad told us that he followed after God, after this God that he, he had heard from. Ishmael may have said something like, yeah, he was following him all right. He followed him to the land and he passed it on by. Remember he went down to Egypt? Remember he said mom? Remember he said that your mom was his sister? Not his wife? Yeah, Isaac might have said, but, but he came back, didn't he? God didn't get on his case. He came back and he worshipped him again. And didn't God say to, to dad, didn't he say, lift up your eyes northward and southward and eastward and westward and from the place you are, look around you. Didn't, didn't dad tell us, didn't he say that all this land he would possess? Yeah, and he worshipped God, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And one of them might have said, hey, remember that time that, that our cousin Lot, remember when Lot was taken captive? Remember he chose Sodom, an area to live, and he was taken captive? And, and Dad, remember he, he took those guys and he, he whipped up on those kings that the, the southern kings couldn't beat? Remember that? That was so cool. Can you believe our dad actually fighting like that? Rescuing? And then one of the other ones might have said, yeah, but remember when Melchizedek showed up and he, he told Dad... Remember how he told Dad how he really won? That Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, he has delivered your enemies into your hands. Remember when he said that to Dad? Remember when Dad told us and taught us about that God will deliver us? That that was cool. Remember when Dad said, you know, after I've brought all these things back from the northern kingdom, remember when Dad said, you know what, I'm not going to lift my hand. I'm not going to allow Sodom, the king of Sodom, to make me rich. That he gave him back everything? How did he do that? Remember when God talked to Dad and he showed himself as his shield? Remember when God said, I am your shield, Abraham. Your sovereign, your very great reward. Remember when Dad would teach us that God is our reward? Yeah, I remember that. Boy, Dad was really confused about how God was really going to work all that out, wasn't he? How, you know, how was God going to really make a multitude of people from this old man of ours? I mean, he was, he was what, 86 when you were born, Ishmael? Remember that? Anybody in here 80, 86? Got anybody? Okay. How'd you like to have a kid? Yeah, I got five already. That's plenty, yeah. How is God going to do that? Dad was confused, and, and, and Dad talked about God, about his circumstances. And they talked through it, and remember Dad believed God? And he relied upon God, and he trusted God. And remember what God said to him? He said, Abram... I credit your account as righteous for trusting in me. Remember God said, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Yeah, I remember that. They're standing by the grave. Isaac might have said something. Hey, you remember when my mom said that God was keeping her from having kids? And my mom said, hey... Abram, go ahead and take Hagar. Remember, remember that situation? 
Remember that dad and, and Hagar, they had you? Remember that? That was very confusing. And after that, my mom kind of got angry at your mom and made her run away. Remember that? Yeah, that's kind of awkward. <laughs> you have to bring up the past like that? And Ishmael might say, you know what? I remember that. But God showed up to my mom. God showed up and said, I am the one who sees you. Man, Isaac might have said, you know, I can't believe you were 13 years old when I was born. I can't believe that 13 years had passed after that that situation. And God shows up and, and tells Dad, I am El Shaddai, God powerful, all powerful. And Dad worshiped him. And God changed his name to Lofty Father to a father of multitude, and he changes my mom's name from wife to princess or to Sarah. And it's crazy. God blessed, blessed my mom and said that she shall become a nation. Kings of people shall come from her. I can't believe dad was 100 years old and mom was 90 when I was born. That's nuts. You know, talking to this with the youth group, I always say, just, think, just imagine your grandma and grandpa having kids. And they're like, ooh. <laughs> you know, Abraham and Sarah, man, they were old, well past childbearing. But remember when God showed up and said, is anything really too difficult for me? Is anything out of my hands? Hey, you remember the time Ishmael might have said, hey, you remember the time that the dad was really confused again? And he wanted to know if God was just. So they had this conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when dad had that conversation with God and, and God just let him talk? Yeah, I do. I, I remember that God learned, or that Abraham learned, dad learned that, that God was righteous that day. Isaac might have said, hey, hey Ishmael, you remember, remember, remember when I was born? And You know, remember that party dad threw for me after I was weaned from mom and you were mocking me? Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. I remember you doing that. Yeah, that's when dad made me and mom leave. Thanks for bringing that up. But you know what? When mom and I were in the desert dying of thirst... God heard my cry and he opened up Hagar's eyes and she saw a well. Ishmael might turn back and say, hey, remember the time dad took you? Huh? Remember the time dad took you and the wood and the servants and the donkey? Remember that one? That was great. I was laughing the whole day. Can you imagine? Oh, Dad, where's the sacrifice, huh? Come on. And Isaac might have said, yeah, that was, that was really strange. I, was, I don't know about that, but I, I followed Dad. And Dad knew something I didn't know. And Dad said at the end of that day that God is the one who provides. 
God is the one who provides. And I can't believe we're standing here at this little cave. Boy, after 62 years of being in the land that God promised him, I can't believe we're standing at this cave in this, this field. This is the only place Dad owns. Yet God promised that he'd own a lot. Boy, we really learned a lot about God, didn't we? Listening to Dad. You see, it wasn't by accident that Abraham's faith grew. It wasn't haphazard that his understanding of who God is occurred in his life. I believe it was purposeful. I believe God allowed Abraham to experience things so that his faith would develop. And I believe God allows things to happen in our lives so that our faith is developed. You see, it says that Abraham expired full of age and satisfied. And I believe the way that you and I can look back over life and say we are satisfied is by a life trusting in Him, knowing Him, turning to Him. Why do I believe that? Because it's the very thing that in the New Testament that the writer of Hebrews commends Abraham on. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Things that we hope for are things we do not have. Or the conviction of things not seen. Faith are those two things. For by it the men of old gain approval. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, dwelling in tents. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised, even though they were well past childbearing years. And all these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offered up, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. But he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, for which he also received him back as a type. You see, as we look back over the life of Abraham, I believe the lesson that is challenging us today is are you and I living a life of faith? With the good situations and the bad situations. You know, a couple of years ago I was diagnosed with depression. This is not a card that I thought was going to happen in my life. This is not necessarily a card I wanted to, to see. But day by day, I am learning to trust in God as I work through my depression. Some days are great. Some days are sad. But 
I am dealing with that through faith, trusting God. What I'd like to do now is, as we've kind of looked back over the life of Abraham, is kind of do a little project with you. If you do me a favor and, and get out your bulletin, there's a page with all these little cards on it. <coughs> you know, it's nice that we can look at Abram's life. It's all written out, isn't it? We can look back over it and say, that makes sense. But what about our own lives? We don't know the next chapter, do we? We don't know what's going to happen. We can look back and relate the story, but it's hard to look, fu- look into the future and know what's going to be written about us. So I'd like you to do something for me. If you would just take about 30 seconds and circle three cards, any three cards. This isn't magical. This isn't mystical. You're not going to walk outside and win a million dollars because you circle the right card, okay? There's nothing special about this. It's just an exercise. Uh, take a second and just circle three cards, any three cards. And I'm going to make them disappear. No, I'm joking. I'm not going to make them disappear. But because I believe we really don't know what's going to happen, but we do know who is in control of all things, I want to walk through this exercise with you. Three. Or as my four-year-old would say, three. So, all right, let's go ahead and turn on that slide. Uh, Next one. Okay, we'll start with the black cards on top, okay? So let's say you circled a black ace. Well, you live a life of acceptance. Congratulations. Uh, Second, if you circled a black two, you live a life of contentment. Uh, If you circled a a black three, you are going to have a life of disappointment. A black four, uh, a life of encouragement. A black five, you're going to have illness in your life. A black six... You're going to have hope. A uh, black seven, you're going to experience your dreams. Uh, a black nine or a black eight, there's going to experience pain in your life. A black nine, struggles and trials. A black ten, you're going to have the career you always wanted. Uh, a black jack, you're going to live with purpose. A black queen, you're going to live with temptation. And a black king, you're going to live with obstacles. You guys like your hand? How's that going? Okay. Well, if you don't like those cards, maybe you circled some red ones. So let's go on to the next slide, the red cards. One, if you circled uh, an, a red ace, you are mature. How many of you guys are mature? Anybody circle a red ace? Thank you for being mature. I cannot believe you circled that one, Amber. Okay. That's a card that you were dealt, huh? Okay. Uh, a, a red two, you live a life of stress. A red three, you live with depression. A uh, red four, you live with insecurity. A red five, you live with compassion. A red six, you live with confusion. A red seven, you have God. How many of you guys circled red seven? Okay, you're the ones that are going to tell the rest of us about God, okay? A red eight, you're foolish. A red nine, you have friends. A red ten, you miscommunicate. A red jack, uh, you have self-control. A red queen, you experience love and you give love. And a red king, you have patience. How do you like your cards? Some cards we go, you know what, I like that. I like that. I can't believe I'm going to have the career I've always wanted. But in the midst of that, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> Great. Great. That's, I'm confused about that one. Hmm. And the reality is that's kind of life. I never thought that I would be depressed or get that card. 
but I did. I have a friend who uh, got breast cancer about five or six years ago. She never thought she would be dealt that card. She did. I know people that have children that never thought they could have children. They were dealt that card. And as you think about your cards, I want you to, we're going to watch a quick video here. thought about the cards you've been dealt? Have you ever taken the time to just stop and examine life as if they were a hand of cards? Some of you would look at your life and you would say, I have a great hand. I want to keep them all. And some of you would look at the hand that you've been given. These, these three cards in my life, they're just rough or bitter. And if I could just exchange those for some new cards, then I would be okay. You see, life is cards. You can't trade in the cards that you've been given in life. I mean, these are your cards, whether you like the way they feel or not. It's funny, in life, how we kind of look at the uglier cards that we don't necessarily want anybody else to see. We try to hide them behind the more noble, significant, prettier cards. It's human nature, I guess. But deep down, we know the cards that we've been dealt. There's no escaping it. It's who we are. These are our cards, no matter how we look at it. They're part of our makeup. We can't escape it. You're all in. But what if? What if we were to stop? and just take the time to look at the cards that we've been given in life. Where did they come from? Is it life? Coincidence? Or was it God? Some of you would say, why would an all-caring, all-loving God really give me this card? I mean, if He really loved me, would He really give me this card? It's the cards of pain. It's the cards that we don't like to talk about. Cards of depression, rejection. That word that just seems to linger in our mind even after all these years. Abuse, divorce, even death. These are real cards. But there's also the good cards in our life. Think back, if you can, to uh, the time you made your dad laugh when you were a little kid. When you tied your shoe. Your first A on a report card. Your first kiss. First job. The first time you stood up for yourself. These are the cards that you're proud of. These are the cards that you play over and over again because these are the pretty cards. It's a sad fact and it's true, but we really care what other people think. These are our favorite cards that we want to show people that we have it all together. But what does God think? What if God were to choose the cards? What would those look like? More than likely, they just wouldn't be the happy cards, but they would be an array of both good and bad cards. You see, we as humans, we do not like the hard cards in life. We try to avoid these like the plague. But don't discount the fact that God may have a purpose for even these cards. God wants to use the disappointing cards as the cards that fill us up with hope and joy. To God, they aren't a bunch of both good and bad cards. They're just cards. Cards that would bring Him glory. Cards that reveal that it's His story, not our story. And cards that can maybe even give us a glimpse of what heaven is like. The crux of the matter is, are we just going to pretend that we're dealing with our cards? Are we going to hide behind cards that are more glamorous? Even hide behind cards that aren't even ours, other people's, because it's comfortable, it's safe. But if we do that, 
Aren't we missing out on all that God wants us to be? Aren't we missing out on the rich lessons that we could learn for God's kingdom? From his view, you might just be given the best hand that you could have ever imagined. As for me, I'm going to play the cards that I've been dealt. If you will allow me to even open you up further to thinking through some things. Um, There's a page in your book that looks like this. There's three little cards. And I believe that the thing that Abraham was satisfied with was his relationship and his faith in God. his His reliance upon, his trust in. And that's the very thing that the, the writer of Hebrews holds high. And I believe that it is also the thing that we are to communicate to one another, to the world, that we are trusting in, relying upon, depending upon God. And what I'd like you to do is think about a time in the past. That's the first card on your left. It says, in the past. Write about a time or write something down that reminds you about a time in your past in which you trusted and relied upon God. It may have been a good circumstance. It may have been a hard circumstance. But just write that down. Take about 30 seconds and write something down. In the past, I experienced or trusted in God in this situation. And you could probably come up with a couple. And I think those are some of the things that we talk about. Remember in the past when we were trusting God for this? Remember when we thought, something or we were confused about something and God showed us the truth. But what about today? What about the present? What is it that's going on in your life today that you are trusting God with today? Relying upon Him today. Whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship. And I have some good friends and what they do is they've got a whiteboard in their kitchen and they write down things on the whiteboard, what they're thinking and praying and trusting God in. It's really cool. And then when God shows up, they write down the answer. It's really encouraging. But what is God doing in your life presently that he's asking you to trust him, rely upon him, depend upon him? And I believe these are the things that we talk about as well. It's a little harder to open up about the present, isn't it? It's easy to talk about the past. But it could be a good thing not necessarily a bad thing you're trusting God for. I would like to have chickens one day. Trusting God for that. At least I'm trusting God might change Melissa's mind. And in the future, what is it about your future you're trusting God with? Something good? Something hopeful? Something you're longing for? Something you'd really like to see happen? Maybe it is something that's hard and difficult. Maybe it's something you're going through and you know it's going to last a long time. But your future, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Him? 
And I believe those are the things we also communicate about. I'm trusting, God, that you will help me to be the kind of parent my children need me to be so that when they look back over their life, they'll have faith. I can't control that. But I can trust God with it. Lord, I'm trusting you that I can be a better husband to my wife day by day. I don't know what it's going to be like in a year. It might be even harder in a year than it is today. And we talk about those things. We share about those things. This is what I'm trusting God for. This is what I trusted God with. This is what I'm currently trusting him on. And this is what I'm going to trust him for. But I don't want to just leave you open now that you've thought through some things. I want to encourage you and challenge you that the goal of God relating to us, I believe, is faith and trust. You see, after Jesus fed the 5,000 and they started following after him, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled, were satisfied. Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to Jesus, well, what should we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work that Jesus wants us to to do? Is to believe and trust and rely upon him, his name, his nature, his character, his goodness, his righteousness, the hope that he gives to us. In Hebrews it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, But Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. See, the hope is Jesus. Because the reality is that you and I all have an expiration date says that Abraham expired. Someone came up to me after first service and he said, well, I think I have a best use-by date on me. I said, yeah, probably. But all of us have an expiration date. Every single one of us. There's going to come a time when we will expire. And our hope is that at that time that Jesus will welcome us in and that our satisfaction will be Him. His presence But I'd like to give you some practical ways to think about developing your faith. Okay, so Chris, let's throw those slides up there. 
What does it mean for you to build your faith? Well, one, faith building isn't a result of pressure, whether it's pressure put upon you by others or pressure put upon you by yourself. It's not by pressure. Faith building isn't an accident. It just doesn't happen accidentally. Faith building isn't a temporary fix. Faith building isn't a result of control. I'm going to control my circumstances, therefore I'll, I'll, I'll trust. No. Faith building isn't the result of force. Now I want to give you a little side note is that Abraham had, um, well, he had more than two boys, but he had two boys that I'm going to talk about. He had Isaac and Ishmael. And they both experienced the life of Abraham. He, they probably heard the same stories. They probably interacted with their father. But one ends up being the promise son one ends up continuing the faith. The other one is the pain in the side of Israel. Abraham could not pass his faith on to both kids. He couldn't have done it by force. He couldn't have done it by control. And like you and I, we cannot forcefully pass our faith on to others. So what do we do? Well, faith involves, faith building involves a conviction about something invisible. First, do you have a conviction about the invisible, unseen God. Faith building involves freedom of choice. The, the reality is that we allow people to choose freely. Yourself, your family, your kids, your relatives. Faith building is a process that takes time. For Abraham, it was 175 years. I hope I learn a little sooner than that. It takes time process. Faith building is a process that involves active participation. Again, like our culture today, we would rather be passive and allow our faith to develop rather than be active and develop, develop our own faith. Faith building is a process in which the outcome is not certain. We don't know what's going to happen, do we? Faith building is a process that exposes the true nature of our faith. When we allow our faith to be built, and worked on, it exposes what we're really trusting in. Faith building is a process that leads into first-hand encounters with Jesus Christ. The reality is that when we enter into this faith building process, we look to Jesus. Not the results, not the outcome, not even my own abilities, but to Jesus. So what are the stages? There, are, I believe there are some stages, and I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm, where is, where's Corey Freeze getting all this information? Uh, I have a book called Guiding Your Teens to a Faith That Lasts. Okay, if you want to write that down if you're interested in reading books. But Guiding Your Teens to a Faith That Lasts. You can take that word teen out. Uh, guiding yourself, guiding a friend to a faith that lasts. That's where I'm kind of getting these points. So there are some stages to faith development. Okay, One is that the first stage is really hearing about a God that we don't know. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God. And so faith, that's where it starts. When, when we start to hear God speak to us, just as God spoke to Abraham, leave your country. Secondly, there's this flirting with a God we might want, we may want. That sounds pretty good. I kind of like that. That's interesting. I might want to try that out. And then we might move on to studying about a God who puzzles us. Okay, I'm getting to know this God, but he's a little confusing. It's kind of like a relationship, you know? Getting to know this guy, but he's somewhat confusing. Trust or, or studying about God. How do I get to know him? Who is he? What is his name? How does he act? 
can he? And then we start testing a God we don't know is trustworthy. If I start knowing about him, can I really know him? Is he trustworthy? Can I rely upon him? And then there's embracing a God whom we don't want to fail. As, as we get to know him and trust him, we go, Lord, I don't want to fail you. I want to experience you richly. And after that, we start spreading the word about a God others don't yet know. How did I come to know God? I heard about him. How will others come to know about God? They hear about him. I tell them. And then finally, suffering for a God who is always with us. We get to the point saying, my life's yours. You can do with it what you want. As long as I have you, I might suffer, but I have you. So those are some stages. And then do we have one more, Chris? Or skills, sorry, skills. So there's, there's the, the faith building, the stages, and then what are some skills that might help us develop our faith? Well, one is to take on the idea that suffering, that we suffer for something bigger than ourselves. That we suffer for something bigger than ourselves. I don't know about you, but I live my life at times that it's all about me. Lord, help me to start suffering for something bigger than myself. Uh, the second one is staying within the boundaries no matter what. Lord, I want to go outside those boundaries. Help me to stay in them. Help me to stay with them. Help me to live trusting you within those boundaries. Third one, working hard now for results later. Working hard now for results later. I had a great experience last night. My uh, neighbors uh, and I, we planted this Japanese popping corn way back in, when was it, May? May or June? And uh, we, we planted it. We fertilized it. We watered it. We took care of it. We, we watched it grow. Uh, we actually had to go out and we had to shake the stalks because we only had a single row and we learned that they don't fertilize themselves. Is that right? Is that how would you, is that you fertilize? I pollinate. Thank you very much. They don't pollinate themselves. So you shake, a, you shake the stalks and the pollen kind of comes down. And, and we worked at this all summer long. And then we... Then they started to die and the, the ears started to, to fall over. We took them off. We dried them. We took the corn off the husk. And last night, we put it in the popper. Put a little oil, put a little salt, and started turning the popper. We got the, this one that you sit on the stove. It's got a little hand crank. And we're like, I'm not sure if this is going to work. Boy, I really hope this works. All this work. You know, we're sitting there. You know how popcorn is. It just takes forever. And all of a sudden, pop, 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 pop. And we're like... Oh my gosh, it works! You know, we're so excited. But working hard now for results later. I believe faith is that process. We work hard today for results we may or may not see later on. Doing right when everyone else says it's wrong. Part of a skill you learn. Putting into our own words what we believe. What do you believe? Have you ever written it down? Have you ever talked about it to your family? This is what I believe. Have you put it into your own words? Choosing what kind of person we want to become on the inside. A lot of the world focuses on the outside. But what about what's going on inside of us? And I think those are some skills. Again, this all leads us back to our hope. Our hope that Jesus has called us, that Jesus is speaking to us, that Jesus is working in us, so that we bring him glory and honor.